I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. In Pakistan, it's sort of like once you're past 25, you're past the expiration date. (laughs) So I was very much past the expiration date. I was sort of thinking this could be another seven years of my life that I just am in a relationship that's not going to go where I want it to go. So there was that thought, but there was also that irrepressible desire and love of romance thinking this could be it. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. A few episodes ago, Ian Koss told us his story about trying to break the cycle of divorce in his family— He refused to be bound by that legacy. Today's story comes at marriage and family and expectations in a different way. It's the story of a woman who also refused to be bound by the rules and norms of her family, who decided to do things her own way. Aisha Matu was supposed to marry a man whose background mirrored hers, Pakistani, Muslim, and from a certain caste. And for a time, that was the plan. But then, one night... In a dimly lit club, she saw a cute guy dancing. Her plan went right out the window. He was one of the few people who was just confident enough to be dancing on his own. And that's initially what drew my eyes to him, besides the fact that he was stunningly handsome. While his friends sort of stood stiffly around with their drinks in hand and not moving at all, he was just flowing. You know, he was dancing. like And like a good dancer, not just like confident. Oh, yes. Because there are, there are confident bad dancers, but no. that's a whole other thing. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. He was confidently and beautifully, gracefully dancing. Let me back up and tell you a little bit about Aisha. She's a writer and editor who lives in San Francisco. She's in her 40s. Aisha grew up all over the U.S. She was born in Chicago. By the time she was five, she'd moved with her family to Albany, then to Southern California, and then to San Jose, California, where she lived until she was 13. And then a big thing happened. My parents were Pakistani immigrants, and they decided that they really wanted to give back. My father was a cardiologist and my mother 
also did many philanthropic activities and is an artist. And they just really wanted to go back to Pakistan, have us experience Pakistan. Um, they wanted to serve their uh, aging parents. They wanted us to know our extended family because out here we had one uncle, one aunt, and that was about it. So Aisha, her parents, and two younger sisters relocate to Islamabad. It's the mid-1980s, Ronald Reagan's America. Pakistan at the time is under a military dictatorship. When they move, Aisha is old enough to realize that things she'd taken as a given, living in the U.S. during the Cold War, like the Soviet Union being the bad guy, are actually a lot more nuanced. Culture shock doesn't even cut it in many ways, I think. It was a completely different world. I think being exposed to that made me realize that there are more stories underneath what I'm being told. And so it sort of set me off on this journey, I think, of being really interested in not only writing my own stories, but in hearing other people's stories. This decision by Aisha's mom and dad to move their daughters to Pakistan, it's not just about giving back to the country or being closer to extended family. My parents, I think, were completely aghast at the thought of having three daughters go through high school in the U.S. and deal with dating and boys and proms and like all of these things. And I think they had anxiety around that. Um, I think that was on their list of reasons to move. It was probably not the number one, but it was definitely a consideration. But Aisha has always considered herself equally American and Pakistani. So when it comes time for college, she very much wants to return to the U.S., she settles on Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. This move back to the States, it comes at a good time for her romantically. I grew up on a diet of 16 candles and all kinds of teen romances and that type of thing, like every American kid. And that's what I wanted. I wanted the romance. I wanted to fall in love. And I wasn't sure that that path was going to be open to me. And it's not that... In Pakistan, we sort of call them arranged marriages and love marriages. So people who find each other, fall in love, get married. It happens in Pakistan, too. It just wasn't something that my extended family at that time had really experienced. Most marriages were kind of arranged, semi-arranged. People were allowed to hang out with each other, have conversations, make their decision. But they were typically sort of chaperoned by the elders of that family at that time. Aisha says she appreciated many of the traditions around love and romance in Pakistan, but she felt like there was something missing. There was so much focus on just the idea of getting married, and there wasn't much talk about compatibility, for example, in terms of my wanting to have emotional compatibility, wanting to have someone who viewed themselves as progressive politically, which was important to me. It was very much about like sort of wealth and status and shared standing in society. So it felt a little bit more like this is about two families rather than about me and the other person. As a teenager in Pakistan, Aisha actually saw someone break these rules. Someone who picked a partner based on love, not family expectation. It was an older sister of a friend of mine who brought home a white American boy from college and was like, I'm marrying him. And I said, you can do that?
It just opened my eyes to, oh, okay, so that's really interesting. And for some reason then, when I was 16 and saw that, I don't know if it was, I think it was subconsciously, became my goal that I was going to do that too. <laughs> that I was somehow, even though I was still living in Pakistan at that time, I was going to have what I perceived to be a grand romance. In college, in the U.S., Aisha does find guys to date, but she feels a little lost. Love and courtship and commitment, she doesn't have anyone to talk to about these things. Certainly not her parents. She's pretty sure they would not approve of her dating in the first place. Unless you are blessed to have those trusted elders in your life or great role models of marriages in your family, your parents... I wonder how people make it through. I mean, to me, it really feels like Adam and Eve all over again, and you're building a fire and you're trying to reinvent the wheel and the family and love over and over again because there's nobody to talk to. At least that's what it felt like to me. She does begin one long-term relationship with a guy in college. They continue dating for a time after she graduates. But he's a boy from Connecticut who was raised Catholic. Over time, their cultural and religious differences seem too vast to overcome. Because even though Aisha bristled at the way marriages are arranged in her family's culture, she did envision settling down with a Muslim man, or at least someone willing to convert. For this guy, she says, the idea of converting is a non-starter. And so eventually we parted. And I made a very strong resolution that I was no longer going to date non-Muslim men. I was only going to date Muslim men just so that I didn't have to deal with that conflict anymore or that conversation anymore. Aisha had been on a journey back toward Islam anyway, after a period of estrangement from her faith during college. I was raised with what I call the Islam of no, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. And I found it very constrictive. Reading mystical Muslim poetry, she says, showed her the love and beauty within Islam, allowing her to reclaim her faith. So Aisha's in her mid-20s, trying to figure all this out. Identity, religion, love. She's living in Boston at the time and working for a human rights organization. And then September 11th happens. It had been this strange time in Boston, uh, obviously, it a time of mourning and grief and seeing these people in trucks waving like giant American flags and going around the commons screaming USA, USA, and feeling very unsafe as a brown woman. Although I don't wear the headscarf, I'm sure many people assume that I could be Muslim. And, you know, and also having friends call me up and say like, you can come stay with us. Are you safe there? Is someone, you know, all of that. It was a very um, upsetting time. Two weeks after the attacks, Aisha is desperate for a distraction. She checks the local arts listings. A funk band called Super Honey is playing that night at Harper's Ferry, a club in Boston. I just needed to kind of be out of my mind in terms of just the constant thoughts, just kind of get away from that whirl of anxiety. And I decided I was going to go dancing that night. She calls her friend Brian. They make plans to meet at the show after work. 
It's like this huge, dimly lit, very crowded place with like, I guess, a bar along one side and the stage in front. And Brian and I was just chit-chatting and I saw this man who was hanging out with his friends. And this is how Aisha meets Randy. He's the guy dancing confidently, gracefully, by himself. Our eyes met a few times, and of course, the whole time I'm not thinking I have this six-foot-two friend who's sitting next to me, and perhaps that's sending a strange signal to this other person. I'm just like, wow, look, I'm very much appreciating you. And we sort of just kept exchanging glances, but he was with his friends, I was with my friend, and we were both shy, I think. But then it's getting close to closing time and we still haven't been able to talk to each other or really approach each other in any way. And I look over Brian's shoulder and the handsome stranger is standing right behind Brian at the bar. And I did something I've never done in my life. (laughs) I am never the person who approaches men. I just leaned over my friend Brian and tapped this gentleman on his shoulder and said, hello. And Brian sort of magically melted away at that point. As a good friend does. As a good friend does. And he and I started talking and I made some sort of inane comment, like we're wearing the same shirt and we were both wearing sort of baseball style shirts, but they were not the same type of shirt at all. And mine had like a glittery sweetheart on it. And his had some sports thing on it. Anyway, so I made some sort of lame line and we started talking. And this was sort of way before smartphones and everything. So we ended up exchanging cards at the end of the night, business cards, and making plans to potentially see each other that week. I just need, like, this is sort of how my brain works, but like knowing that you know movies and are into these Mm -hmm. sort of love stories, could, like, who would play him in a movie? Oh, Gael Garcia Bernal. Wow, good for you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm lucky. (laughs) Well, well done. Yes. After that night, Aisha and Randy make plans to meet at a cafe. You do the sort of, oh, we'll just meet for coffee so you can make an exit if you need to. But we were there for hours, just talking and talking and talking with each other and feeling really comfortable and immediately making plans for the next date where he took me to a Thai restaurant and we had dinner. And it just felt so, first, really romantic and whirlwind and wonderful, but also so very relaxed in the way that we had a lot in common and a lot to say and felt very comfortable with each other at the same time. But remember that vow Aisha had made to herself that she would only date Muslim men? Well, that's not Randy. Randy is half Albanian, half English and Irish, and from the Boston area. He'd been baptized Albanian Orthodox, Aisha says. But up to that point, he'd been a pretty firm atheist. Aisha tells herself, you know what, I'm just not going to worry about all that right now. I think like when your brain, your reason goes offline like that, any of those resolutions that I've made to myself were not having an easy time of like breaking through 
all of that connection and desire and joy and pleasure and beauty. And oh my God, this is exactly, you know, like that whole process of falling in love. So Aisha gets that Molly Ringwald moment she'd always wanted, but it's fleeting. Because falling in love, that's the easy part. Staying in love through all the ups and downs that follow. Well, that's a whole different movie. Aisha's story continues after a short break. Okay, we're back. So Aisha and Randy start dating. They're together for less than four months when they make plans for a special dinner on New Year's Eve, the final day of 2001. But that night, one of Aisha's sisters, who also lives in Boston, has to be rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. Aisha and Randy ditch their dinner plans and instead spend New Year's Eve babysitting for her niece. It ended up being just this wonderful romantic evening where I saw him tending to an infant. And I don't know, there's something about that just melted me. It was so beautiful to see him being so tender and sweet with the little two-month-old and playing with the kid. And it was it felt like I could see that as our future. Randy is having the same strong feelings. Strong enough that as they're heading home that night, he does something totally out of the blue. He turns to her and says, marry me. And I said, yes. And literally, that's what it was completely unplanned, I think, on both sides. And it, we just felt like this enormous connection and longing for each other and like this is right and we can do this and it was again it's very whirlwind like it's where it's we're only like not even four months after we've met but I just had this sense all throughout and and he says he did too that we'd found the person we wanted to be with at that point did your parents know you were dating him at all nope Aisha knows she can no longer avoid this hard conversation with her parents. Her dad had actually met Randy briefly a month or two earlier, when Aisha's niece was born. Aisha didn't have a camera to take baby photos, so Randy brought his camera to the hospital. At the time, Aisha told her dad, this is my friend, Randy. With my dad, I actually ended up calling him, and I just said, I've met someone, and you always said that if I meet someone, I should bring them in through the front door, basically. I should talk to you about it. And he said, is that that boy who brought the camera to the hospital? And I was like, yes. <laughs> it was such a tender moment, actually, because He could have confronted me at that time. He could have asked me about it over the course of the past four months or so. He never mentioned it. He said, I trusted that when you were ready, you would talk to me about it. Her dad asks all the dad questions, like, who is this guy? What does he do? He said, look, I just have two things that I'd like you to consider. One is, you know, I really appreciate you asked me for our blessing and input and included us in this and may you always be happy and joyful together and he said the second thing is i would really like him to study and consider converting to islam 
not every conversation goes this smoothly. Initially, Randy's family is alarmed when he tells them that this woman he's been dating for only a few months is going to be a permanent part of his life. Aisha had barely even met them. And then there's Aisha's mother, who turns out to be a very tough sell. When she learns that Aisha has made plans to marry outside their culture, she stops talking to her daughter. It was really painful for me because I wanted to share this moment with her and I wanted to discuss it with her, get her wisdom, like, you know, just really connect with her. And the lines of communication were completely closed. Finally, after three months, Aisha's mother calls her. And she said, uh, you know, this is really difficult for me, but I want you to be happy. And if this is the person who's going to make you happy, then I support you. And I said, well, can you tell me a little bit about the last few months? Because we haven't spoken, like, what was happening for you? And she said, he's not from our culture. You know, he doesn't speak our languages. He's not from our background. Uh, Her other two sons-in-law were from Pakistani backgrounds. My two younger sisters um, had gotten married and engaged uh, by this time. And she just felt a tremendous amount of anxiety in terms of how am I going to connect with this person? Will I ever feel like this is my son? Will he feel like a part of the family? And at that point, there was no real saying which way that would go. But I really appreciated that she was able to tell me that. And I just said, you know, let's just give it some time. As for her dad's request that Randy consider converting to Islam, Randy is actually pretty receptive to this. Remember, this is a guy who had been, in Aisha's words, a hardcore atheist. But then something began shifting for him in his mid-20s, and he, I think, just became curious. Like, is there something out there? Is there something more? And it was at that point of curiosity that we met. And I said, look, I don't want you to do this for me. Like, this has to be something that resonates for you and seems like the truth to you. And I know that's kind of fraught when you're emotionally involved now at this point, you know, but to the best of my ability, I want to give you that space and take as much time as you need. Over a period of months, Randy does a ton of reading about Islam. He bounces questions off Aisha and her sister and brother-in-law. He consults an imam at a local mosque. By the summer of 2002, Randy decides he's ready to do this. He becomes a Muslim. That August, he and Aisha get married in a huge traditional Pakistani ceremony in Islamabad. I feel like everyone was very welcoming towards him and very curious about him and very happy that he was there. And we had like, yeah, it was two or three days long. Like Randy basically flew in for the wedding. I had been there for a couple of weeks doing preparations and stuff and lots of singing and dancing and feasting and meeting 10,000 people. (laughs) And so it was very overwhelming, I think, for him and his mom. They then have a reception in Boston with friends and local family after flying back home. And the whirlwind just doesn't stop. As newlyweds, Aisha and Randy relocate to San Francisco, where Aisha's been recruited for a job with the Human Rights Agency. They move into a one-bedroom apartment in this new city where they know basically no one. And this, Aisha says, is where the honeymoon period abruptly ends. One of the things Aisha has thought a lot about 
is the many cycles of a marriage. She talks about how there's really no such thing as one marriage that lasts a lifetime. One long marriage, she believes, is actually a collection of many different marriages, each with its own beginning and ending. The marriage that she and Randy had known so far, it ends, and a new one begins, because Aisha gets really sick. I had been having a lot of severe back pain, and I woke up one day and I was no longer able to walk. I was the only one with a job, and now I was hospitalized. I was in the ICU, and they were trying to figure out what was going on. You talk about sickness and health and all of these things, and however however that's phrased in whatever kind of ceremony you have, but like especially as young people, it's like you kind of don't think about things like that happening quickly. And so what kind of stress does that put on both of you beyond not feeling well, but also having to partner through that? It puts a tremendous amount of pressure on any relationship. And I think particularly a new relationship. We were just over a year out from having met and just a few months into our marriage. And it made me realize, yes, like you have these expectations of in sickness and in health, but you think of that as decades away. You think of that as something that will happen in some future, not now, not when you're, you know, in your late 20s. My father came out, uh, flew from Pakistan to be with us as well. And I had a couple of different thoughts when he walked in the door. One was sort of a sigh of relief of here's someone that I can really lean on and know he's going to be here for me. Because I felt the newness of my relationship with Randy and not knowing how much pressure it could take at this point, feeling like we were untested in that. Because the idea of marriage, I think, is always that you build slowly over time that type of trust and strength and knowingness over years. And I certainly didn't expect it in the fourth or fifth month of marriage. So yeah, there was that moment of fear and uncertainty. And do I really know this person? Can I really depend on him? Are we going to get through this? It was just really being thrown into a crucible. It turns out, Randy, he's a pretty great caregiver. Yes, their relationship is new, but Randy shows up for her. It's also, in this very strange way, a very sweet and romantic time again, because some of the, my major memories of that time are, I'm paralyzed, I'm in a bed, in the hospital bed, and Randy would crawl into bed with me and he would read to me and it's just I don't know even now I just feel my heart melting when I think of that because it was just the two of us in this dimmed hospital room with all these beeping machines and he's reading to me even though the world is completely uncertain. Am I ever going to walk again? What's going to happen to us? How are we going to survive this? And yet it's also, you are here and I am here and our hearts are beating so close together and we're here and we're going to make it through.
For a couple of years, Aisha and Randy feel their way through some pretty scary stuff. Aisha has these sudden attacks of paralysis and blindness. Doctors initially treat her for MS. Randy gives her weekly drug injections in her thigh. For a time, Aisha's in the hospital about every six weeks. Finally, she's diagnosed with an autoimmune condition known as Devic's disease. Aisha gets the treatment she needs and makes dramatic improvement. And then life keeps moving. Aisha and Randy's partnership enters a new phase. There came, you know, a time after we'd been through all of this medical ups and downs. We had finally reached a place of calm uh, with my treatment that helped keep my exacerbations in control. And we even reached a place where we were able to do something that the doctors initially told us would never happen, which was we were able to have a child. Their son is born in 2010. And when our child was born, the marriage that we had known ended and a new one began. And so it was, again, this process of, oh, well, okay, now who are we now? We're in our 30s, late 30s now, and we have a child. And this is a completely different dynamic and caregiving model. Such a different dynamic, in fact, that another big thing happens. It's 2015. Their son is five years old. Pressures of the household put a strain on both of them and their partnership. Over time, a lot isn't said. And after more than 13 years together, Randy tells her, I don't want to be married anymore. This is a shocking thing for Aisha to hear. They'd gotten past her health crisis. They'd had a child. They were building a life together. She tries to put aside the hurt and figure out what's going on to see if she can salvage things. I had to try and come to a place of curiosity about like, what's happening? Where is this coming from? How can I have your back? How can I listen to what's going on? What kind of support do you need? And that was really hard. There was also a part of me that just wanted to lash out, take my child and leave. There was some pressure from other people. Well, if he doesn't want to work it out or he doesn't want to be married, then why are you hanging out? Like, have some self-respect. And I think had we not had that foundational medical trauma that started our marriage, I might have been that person who had left. But I feel like Randy had given such selfless and complete and loving caregiving to me for so many years when I was sick that I felt like I could give him at least some time. Aisha says that she didn't see at the time how Randy had just continued playing that caretaker role in the family, how she'd just been taking that for granted. I wasn't necessarily thinking that's actually a huge burden and that's something that needs to move between the partners. It shouldn't just be like one person is the caregiver always and forever, but that he in turn sometimes also needed the space to be carried and supported and that it was very difficult for him to ask for those things. She decides to give it six months. Her parents are initially supportive of her efforts to keep the marriage together. But eventually, they lose hope. They encourage her to begin making her own life. 
just at the point when Aisha's ready to give up. Randy comes to her and says, I've been going to therapy on my own for several months. I figured out some things about myself. I want to make this work. And when I reflected on it, I realized it's actually not working for me either. Like, I have been unhappy, but I haven't said anything about it. I have just accepted that as if it's set in stone, that this is the way it has to be. And so by going through individual therapy and really talking to each other in a very real way about what we wanted for ourselves and as a family and as a marriage and what does that look like, over the course of two years, we were able to really come to a place where it felt like we were able to choose each other again. When she reflects on it now, Aisha sees how falling in love, all that 16 candle stuff, isn't actually much of a foundation for a lifetime together. It's a great start, yes. But that's all it is. I think the love story made me take for granted that it will always be that way, right? That love never dies, you know? That we'll always be able to come back to this. But really thinking about, like, the prioritizing our time together, the time and investment it takes, that it is an ongoing, almost like a living being outside of us. Some people call it, like, the garden that is outside of yourself. Marriage is a garden outside of yourself, and you have to sort of keep tending to it. I wonder if some of that is cultural. Um, you know, like in, in my Pakistani culture, people put a lot of emphasis on marriage, but they don't talk about how you get through the next 50 years. So Aisha and Randy recommit to showing up for each other. They keep changing and learning together. And Aisha's parents... Their relationship with Randy is tighter than anyone could have imagined back in the early days of their courtship, especially her mother. They have the most amazing relationship where I see her laugh and hang out and cook in the kitchen together. So they've been able to develop a friendship and to realize that, yeah, those commonalities can help. But there's something about a human-to-human meeting, a heart-to-heart meeting that can actually be surprising in the depth of the friendship that can form from that. The emotional compatibility that drew her to Randy at the start, it's still there. Her instinct to choose love, it was right, even though it meant sidestepping the customs of her family and background. What is your favorite thing to do with your husband right now? Like your favorite activity? I still love it when he reads to me. I still think it's one of the most romantic things in the world. But my favorite, favorite recent activity that I can remember is taking a chocolate-making class together. I think it's just rediscovering parts of him and realizing there's still so much to know, even almost 20 years in. There's this beautiful, beautiful quote by Arcella K. Le Guin, which I really resonate with. She says, love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made, like bread, remade all the time, made new. It's what we do every day. It's that turning to each other every day. And I think that goes against many of the things that we're told, that love is natural and you don't need to work on it. And this, that, you know, all it's actually standing against that and saying, no, actually, 
you have to put in the effort every day and you have to choose each other every day. Aisha, thank you so much for telling your story, your wonderful love story. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure. I love talking about love. You can read more about Aisha's story in an anthology she co-edited called Love Inshallah, The Secret Love Lives of American Muslim Women. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGorry and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can always send us a letter. We are an advice column to loveletters at boston.com or online at loveletters.show. You've got to be pretty in love to look at Boston in the winter and be like, this is, this is it. <laughs> this is perfection. I, I, didn't know, I didn't know where you were going with that, that you know Boston in the winter. I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. <laughs>